At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And I had a really interesting conversation today with a friend of mine who um, messaged me and had a a question for me. And I'd actually be curious to get your take on this too, but I thought it might be kind of fascinating to have just a couple seconds um, online. And she was asking me um, why it is that I don't use a pseudonym um, for like my podcasting and my online presence. Uh, and it was an interesting conversation because she was saying, you know, she's considering like launching some more projects herself and has talked to some other people who do use online personas and was basically asking me, like, I was just curious, like, to get your take on it because I know a lot of people who do. And I was just wondering, like, why you don't. And um, the simplest answer is that if I were going to go back and do it again, I absolutely would. Um, <laughs> but I had no idea this was going to take off. <laughs> yeah, I am kind of a lucky person and that a lot of people assume that what is in fact my actual name is a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. because I have a slightly unusual last name. Right. Uh, I've parted the curtain a little bit here and probably shouldn't have admitted that, but like the amount of people that believe it's a stage name has kind of put me in a situation where I think it is almost as if I had just chosen a stage name. <laughs> well, for me, it's it's partially like I was, you know, in college actively building a performance career, and so I right. wasn't, like, I was building a brand under my name. And then, um, you know, when I started, like, writing consistently um i was writing under my name and so it didn't make any sense to launch a creative project that wasn't under my name because then i would just be fracturing my own portfolio and my own momentum and my own like brand recognition right um and if i had just kept freelancing that would have been fine honestly mm-hmm. um i mean it would not have been fine because freelancing was killing me but yeah it's, um, it's but a- if i had if i had just kept freelancing and hustling like the name recognition would not have been an issue mm-hmm. it's only because like i have now transitioned into a specific kind of work in which mm-hmm. you know i have a very public persona and then i have this very public persona and both of them are under the same name and those spheres can never mix now the good news is that uh, for the most part i'm pretty certain that most of the people you encounter in your professional life don't know what a podcast is uh, most of them don't and and most like i i would guarantee that none of them actually know about any of the things i do online so don't tell them you narcs never ever ever i'm not a narc i wouldn't lose my job if people found out about this podcast I may get in trouble for some of the beliefs I espouse here. Fair. Um, so when I ask people who listen to this podcast not to, like, try to dox me, there are very real reasons I need yeah. you not to do that. Snitches get stitches and uh, narcs get fed to sharks. There you go. So I... Uh, I the sharktopus, specifically. Oh my god, absolutely. I Yeah, I have, like, mixed feelings about it because I definitely, at various times in my online life, have been very strict about having pseudonyms that I used. Mm-hmm. Um... I would often on like message boards that I was part of, I was part of uh, as a very cool kid who did not have a lot of friends. I was in a lot of online communities. I was on a lot of like mm-hmm. message boards and I often I had my username and then I actually would go by my middle name 
Sure. Uh, you were also a minor, so that was smart. Yes. Oh, t- exactly. So for like many reasons. Then when I had my brief YouTube channel, I used my for actual first name and then didn't reveal my last name and mainly went by my username. Yes, I did have a YouTube channel in my youth. Please don't try to find it. I'm trying to scrub its existence from the internet. It's not that there's anything offensive on it. It's just embarrassing and kind of cringy. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh as we started this project and as I was starting a lot of my projects, I was also and am, I am also currently pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. Right. So I, as much as like I value my uh, personal privacy and stuff, I do, I, I am at the same time trying to actively like sell myself as a right exactly. So I do, yeah. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, especially for me when I was getting started, I was kind of like a jack of all trades, master of none situation. I was doing so many things. I couldn't afford to like, not have any of them attached to the other stuff. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I was, uh, and still am, a performing musician under my regular name. And then I was writing. And um, again, a lot of it has been that I have not expected any of the things that I do to reach an audience so quickly. I assumed Mm -hmm. I would have more time to make any of these decisions and I just have it. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, the first play I wrote went to New York City. So that didn't really give me a lot of time to, to figure that out. And then, you know, and then once my name was attached to that project... Like, I wanted everything else in my portfolio to be attached to that, you know, because that was, like, the most successful I was going to be for a long time. (laughs) So I needed not to separate myself or distance myself from that project. So um, it's an interesting conversation. And I thought it was, Mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of fascinating. And um, yeah, so I, uh, if anybody else out there listening is is curious about the same thing, because I know that it is... Um, sort of a, an obstacle that a lot of people go through trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate this space. And like, mm-hmm. if anybody has been wondering, like, why do you use your actual real human name if you have, you know, a job that you don't want connected to it? The answer is just that, again, I, this didn't happen on purpose. Right. <laughs> when we started Cryptid Keeper, we were fairly certain we were going to have an audience of five. Yeah. That has grown by a factor of 2,000. So, <laughs> you know, not to like brag or whatever. No, um, I do actually have a few pseudonyms that I do use on the internet. I'm obviously not going to name them here. But like sure. in certain online spaces uh, or attached to certain like certain work, I like to have my own sort of separate brand for that. So like that is still a thing that happens. Uh and then, at, yeah, and then at the same time, as the, the only real consequence of, like, the, or I shouldn't say consequence, the, a thing that's happened mainly as a result of me using my real name with this is, one, people assuming that what is my real name is not my real name, and two, mm-hmm. uh, occasionally when I comment on stuff in, like, cat groups or in the crab <laughs> meme group I'm in on Facebook, yeah. people will be like, oh, like, from the podcasts that you do? And I'm like, yeah. Let me have this, people. <laughs> Uh, Now, on the other hand, the thing that has been really nice about it, and I was saying this earlier, is that, and I hesitate to talk about this because I think for the most part, people are going to take it the right way, but please don't take this as an invitation if you are not somebody already currently in these circles. Yes. It's just to say that, you know, some of the people that I have met through doing this who have become very good friends, it's meant that there's not like a point at the friendship at which I have to say, all right, I have some news for you. Yes. Oh my God, right? (laughs) The person you know doesn't exist. Oh my god, oh my god, I'm having to, or just having to, like, this is gonna sound really wild, but, like, nothing fills me with more just palpable dread, like, just brings sweat to my brow and a chill to my spine, like, when someone I know from my regular life, like, out of Mm -hmm. the internet life, finds me on Twitter and starts following me. Because then I have to reckon with the fact that they are seeing, like, they are now being exposed to a facet of me that I do not necessarily bring with me into my everyday world. I know, Like, right? one of my classmates, 
from grad school just followed me on Twitter and I, <laughs> I got so stressed out. A couple months ago, my younger brother's girlfriend followed me on Twitter and I was like, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> like, I hope you're really cool because... You're about to see things that some members of my family have not seen. Like, you're about to see some really weird stuff. You're about to learn about all my weird projects. And, like, um, I hope you, like, weirdly aggressively worded thirst tweets about John Mulaney. Welcome to my (laughs) online presence. (laughs) Speaking of online presences, would you like to hear about a cryptid on the cryptid podcast? (laughs) I would. But first, I would like to know if you could do this all over again, what would your cryptid key persona be? Oh my god, that's such a good question. I mean, probably like, I would. I usually believe if you're picking a pseudonym, it should be something close enough to your real name that if someone calls you by it, you won't be thrown off. Like, oh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you are out at a public event, say, like I became like a, like say we went to like PodCon or something mm-hmm. and we were known by a pseudonym, like I wouldn't want to be someone to shout like, hey, Charlotte, meaning me and not because I would never turn around. Um, so I would probably I got go by, desensitized like, to this in public school because there were so many Alexes all the time anywhere mm. that I just had to learn to turn it off because I was like whipping my head around every 30 seconds. Eventually, okay. I just pretty much went by Flanagan. See, I would pick probably one of the names that I mistake for my own when I hear it really fast in public. Ah. So I would be I would be an Allison or a Madison. Yeah, um, that's fair. I was, so I would just be like Madison Largefoot. <laughs> Largefoot. You know, like Bigfoot. Also, I do have kind of No, large I did feet. get it. It was very subtle. I do have kind of big feet for my height. Like when I was a child and my feet mm-hmm. became this size, which they have been since I was 11. And I've been the height that I am now since I was 11. Uh, the woman at the, at the shoe store was like, oh, you're probably going to be really tall because of your shoe size. And then I never grew anymore. <laughs> Aww. And then I stayed five foot three and a half for the rest of my life. Aww. You're a really tall hobbit. <laughs> I'm a very tall hobbit with big ol' hairy feet. Um, Take that, internet. <laughs> <laughs> please don't. <laughs> if I find anything about myself on wiki feet, I will walk into the sea. Okay. So oh my God. what would yours be? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it would be something super weird because I would be like, this is my chance to like, <laughs> take a super weird name. Um, I remember when I was little like elementary school I read some book in our library about this girl who like went on this journey she was in this this is a bad book because she was like an early teen and she went on this journey of self-discovery where she just like through hiked the Appalachian Trail which gives one very unrealistic expectations for what through hiking the Appalachian Trail is but it was a great book and um the main character's name was Katahdin and she went by Danny with an I and I thought that was super cool so I like that um, I think Katahdin is a great name in addition to like you know being just very cool and outdoorsy and wonderful um so I don't know. I would I would probably probably snatch that. Just yoink. Just yoink it. No last name. One name. None. Like no. Madonna, like share. <laughs> yeah, just one name. I don't know. If I if I were specifically choosing an online presence, I probably just wouldn't say my last name online. I would probably just go by a first name. Oh, uh, that's actually fair. I love pen names. Pen names are one of my favorite things in the whole world. I think they're so much fun. So yeah, I kind of regret in retrospect not coming up with more fake names for myself. But here we are. We could fake our own debts and then take up the mantle of our own podcast as two new people. Two new people with remarkably similar voices. Nobody can tell voices apart anyway. If you tell them it's a different voice, they'll believe you. <laughs> That's fair. If our Twitter feeds are to be believed, the amount of time that people at you about how much you love owls. 
or at me about how much I love the uh, how much I love talking about Appalachia. So. And now it's just, it, now it sticks because when people started doing that, we like didn't have, <laughs> I remember having actual conversations where it was like, I don't want to correct this person because we have like 20 fans and I don't want to alienate any of them. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's a very small pool we're in right now. Yeah. So and it's uh, full of owls, chock full of them. So tell me about whatever this actual cryptid is so we can give the people the 40 minutes of promised content. Yeah, so uh, not to brag, but I did look up the pronunciation of the location where this happened beforehand. <laughs> wow. Um, so impressive of us to suddenly do the bare minimum. Really stepping up. I did it because this is a French fellow. Oh. Um, so... This is uh, last week. I'm there. This is very like nebulously tied to last week's. It's not an aquatic creature in the slightest, but mm-hmm. I do want to say that I would like to personally tie it to it because it is something of a one hit wonder in that this is one of those creatures that showed up for like one very particular for sure place in one ver- in one particular place for one particular amount of time, and then in this case was slain. There and, was a cultural moment, and yes. then that cultural moment was viciously ended. Exactly. So I would like to talk about le bête. De Gévaudan. <laughs> the Beast of Gévaudan. Um, and if I'm pronouncing the place wrong, you can take it up with Emma Says on YouTube, which is a YouTube <laughs> pronunciation channel. How do you that spell I, it? Uh, G-E-V-A-U-D-A-N. Yeah, okay. Gévaudan? <laughs> Gévaudan, I think. Yeah, yeah. Gévaudan. Um, anyway, I never took French in high school. I took Spanish and also Latin. Anyway, <laughs> so... This is a creature. Uh, it was a man-eating animal that terrorized the former province of Gévaudan uh, in the Marguerite Mountains of south-central France from 1764 to 1767. These attacks spanned an area 90 by 80 kilometers or 56 by 50 miles for the Americans out there. And it was a beast with formidable teeth, an immense tail, according to contemporary eyewitnesses. And... There's a lot of debate surrounding what this creature actually was. Uh, there were there are accounts that describe it as this massive kind of wolf, but then there's obviously a lot of reason to believe there was it had no there was there's a lot of reason to believe that it couldn't have possibly been a wolf. First up, I'll go into mm-hmm. it in a little bit. And at the end of the day, even if it likely wasn't, because of the giant wolf of it all, it has now been irreparably tied to the mythology of werewolves, particularly in Western Europe. So. Not a werewolf per se. There's nothing to indicate that it turned into a man or even was actually a wolf. But according to the Wikipedia page for the Beast of Gévaudan, um, it is actually attributed to being one of the places where some of the origins of werewolves being vulnerable to silver bullets comes from. Because the man who eventually killed the beast for the final time in 1767, we'll get into that, uh, killed it with bullets he had forged himself from silver. So... Let's dive in. Let's hop over to our familiar friend, the Cryptids Wiki. Love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now here, there. this goes into, obviously, I'm going to talk mainly about this thing from a historical and a scientific perspective in terms of, like, what animal was this possibly actually. But before I do that, I want to have some fun and play in the space a little bit. And we're going to talk about it, kind of the folklore that surrounded it a little bit. There's not real folklore so much as very much word of mouth, like French peasants whispering amongst each other in a hurried fervor in the middle of the night about this beast, this great beast. So 
Locals believed it to be a werewolf, or more specifically, a sorcerer who shapeshifted into a monstrous predator in order to feed on human flesh. It was also... <laughs> it was also Pretty su- good reason. Right. It was also supposed to be bulletproof, uh, because supposedly multiple people shot it and hit it, but it was not phased or killed until it was killed in 1919. 19- Oh my god, imagine. Until it was killed in, in 1767 by... Kind of a vintage boy, huh? Yeah, by Jean Chastel. Chast- I think that's how you... I don't know French. With the silver bullet. Um, now, there's a lot of very weird conspiracy and speculations surrounding the origins of this creature, and I'm very excited to get into that with you. But first, just a brief description of it. It was a massive, large, kind of canine-like creature with a snout. Oh, puppy. I know, a baby with a snout. Uh, it was um, described as either being dark red, red with a large gray patch, or red with faint stripes, uh, or black and white, very different depending on the sightings. Mm-hmm. It was uh, in about quadruple the size of a horse. Oh, People described it as a bear, as a hyena, as a wolf, and as a panther at various points. The wolf-like snout. <laughs> I'm sorry. Something about the cadence of that just reminded me of, you know, the clickhole video where they're talking about um, radishes? Yes. <laughs> and they're like, a radish. It is a fruit. It is a kind of vegetable. It is the blood red eyeball of God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I do. It is a type of nut. <laughs> So, um, it is a panther. It is a wolf. It is a bear. It is the blood red dog of God. So (laughs) its ears were small and round lying close to the head, which indicates a little bit more of like a hyena or a bear like description. A long, strong neck, a long, thick, strong tail resembling a panther's tail that the beast used as a weapon to knock down men and animals alike. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Anyone struck by the tail reported that it hit with considerable force. The feet Ooh. were hard to describe. Some described it as having cloven hooves or having paws with each digit tipped with a hoof. Aw, baby. I'm gonna I want you to elaborate on why that makes it baby. <laughs> because no one else will love him. Oh, oh god. Oh god. There's no. only me. You are its mother now. So <laughs> it's me. There were also people who uh, declared it some kind of escaped lion, which could almost. (laughs) (laughs) No, go ahead. Which could almost make sense if you're if you're seeing like if there aren't a lot of animals in 1700s France with like massive clawed feet like that of a lion. Like, you know, you know, you know, lions, you know, lions lions are. Yeah. You know, like lions from like Africa. They have claws on their pauses. Uh, like a house cat's, but bigger. Anyway, uh, I could imagine in a panic and being a French person who's never seen a big cat like that, seeing that and going, what is, what is this hard part of their foot? A hoof? Uh, <laughs> this hard... You gads, it has so many tiny hooves. Uh, sacre bleu. So many hooves. Uh, I'm sorry if we have any French listeners. There are so many hooves. <laughs> what shall we do with this? Mm-hmm. There are too many. I'm going to lose my mind. There are also uh, possibilities of it being some sort of uh, vestigial version of a prehistoric creature. Uh, I'll go into the specific animal that some people theorize that it might have been a little bit later. Some people even propose that it was an elaborate hoax. But 
Yeah, that is introduction to the beast of Gévaudan in terms of its descriptors. So sort of this like we have with a lot of cryptids, this big kind of amalgam of a lot of different traits. At the end of the day, it being sort of like some big animal. We're not sure what it was. It could have been any one of these things, but it didn't look entirely like any one of them. So, you know. Powerful. Yeah. Pretty powerful. Uh, what you have to know about it is uh, no matter which description you adhere to, this sucker was pretty dangerous. Um, <laughs> How long did you spend practicing that? I didn't. It just came out of me. It's like the spirit of Julia Child flowed through me. I don't know why I said that. She's Addison only... is speaking in tongues. <laughs> Someone only... come bless our podcast. It's the only French person I know, apparently. Bouillabaisse. Okay, so anyway. Oh gosh. I'm going to hop over to a piece on Smithsonian Magazine's website. We have nice. some actual sources this time around, not like not like government conspiracy dot horse. Which, by the yeah, way, this dot- is a hard science now. Yeah, dart, like dot horse, by the way, is a URL you can have. Like, you can have that. Anyway, uh, that's a domain you can buy. Sorry, I opened this webpage and this commercial came up for what I now see as The Walking Dead. But first, it was just a bunch of images of people shushing the camera. And I was terrified. <laughs> that was so scary. They why? See you. Why is that an ad for The Walking Dead? <laughs> okay, so. Uh, this is by this headline is uh, when the beast of Gévaudan terrorized France. The subheader is the tale of this monster grew in the telling, but the carnage still left nearly 100 dead. So this is by Lorraine Boissonnot. I want to say I'm, I'm truly just guessing at that at that last name. But if you search Lorraine and then start to type that and then the headline, I'm sure you'll find it. This goes into sort of the damage wrought by this beastie and a little bit more of an in-depth thing about the terror that it brought to this small French community. So the monster's first victim was a 14-year-old girl watching her sheep by the name of Jean Boulet. And then throughout 1764, the attacks continued. Victims with throats torn out or heads gnawed off. Uh, Farm animals found like ripped open all throughout the French countryside in this area. Um, It traveled, the news traveled all the way to the royal palace in Versailles. It became like something that brought the nation to a standstill, so to speak. So the region itself was as mysterious as its monster. J.M. Smith, a historian and an author of Monsters of the Gévaudan, The Making of a Beast, wrote, It had the reputation for being a remote, isolated backwater where the forces of nature had not been full tamed, where the forests were indeed enchanted. It's fascinating, it's powerful, it's scary, it's sublime. So it sounds like the backdrop for, like, a fairy tale for something mysterious to happen in the woods and it reminds me of sort of and we've sort of kept this in our folklore this idea that like the forest is this place where dark mysterious things happen and we can never truly have a real foothold mm-hmm. as human beings this was of course in the 1760s uh after the seven years war uh so it was a pretty tricky time for the country just kind of setting the backdrop here. So the tricky is a trick. Okay, listen. I didn't want to spend too much time talking about the Seven Years' War, so just let me let me let me just kind of zoom past it uh, to get to the beast. But yeah, correct. Now the reason the beast and its victims even rose to prominence uh, in terms of discussion and spreading throughout the country was because this thing did so well in the press. The political news was largely censored by the king, so newspapers turned to other subjects to cover. So. Francois Morena, creator and editor of The Courier d'Avignon. I should not have picked a French creature. This was such a bad choice. Um, (laughs) 
started. You did uh, good with Davignon. Thank you. Um, used a type of reporting called Fait divers, divers, uh, stories of everyday incidents in small villages, similar to today's true crime, basically like old school kind of crime beat to tell stories. So when this first happened, it blew up in his publication um, as the headcount, headcount, but I'm bumped, yikes, rose in 1764. Local officials and aristocrats took action. So here we have Etienne Lafont, a regional government delegate, and Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, the le- a leader of the local indus- industry, what? Infantry, organized the first concerted attack on the beast. At one point, the number of volunteers was to 30,000 men. Uh, at the time, the creature had largely been targeting, as far as they could tell, women and children. Um, and mm-hmm. so... <laughs> They dressed up some soldiers as peasant women in hopes of attracting the beast and just sort of like placed them around for as bait. Wow. It didn't work. A reward for killing the beast eventually equaled a year's salary for working men, writes historian Jean-Marc Morisot in La Bête de... Je- oh my God. Javadon. It's like a tongue twister. Ugh. After the war, Duhamel wanted to sort of redeem his honor after bad experiences in war, and he had felt like his reputation had suffered after great losses. So he was like, I'm going to kill this massive beast and make all France see what a manly man I am. Uh, and so he took this on as his pet project. He could have just taken it on as a pet. Oh, Alex, we're going to get to that. That's not a joke. I, uh? I'm not kidding. Hold that. Put a pin in it. I'll pull that pin out later. Well. Well, get to it, my friend. Just trust me. Take my hand. Walk with me. Walk with me through the darkened (laughs) forest and I'll lead you into the light. Okay. So individuals may have had some success defending themselves. I want to, I'll talk about specifically this girl who defended herself against the beast famously a little bit later. There's literally a statue of her. She's my hero. But now I'm going to skip that. Skip that right now. So strong. So brave. Yeah. I'm going to put a pin in that as well. Jonas Bark, am I right? Uh, more like Marie Jean or Marie Jean Marie. How do you spell? How do you pronounce the fe- the female name J E A N N E? Keep going. <laughs> no, it's Jean. Jean. Uh, more like Marie Jean of Arc. But anyway, I will come yeah, back to so her. Yeah, so Jean d'Arc is actually her French nominative. Oh my God! Really? Cool. Well, yeah. I'll come back to that. So my Joan of Arc joke does still work, and you should have just let it rest. I liked your bilingual joke. I'm sorry that I don't know Fran- French well enough to realize that that was a really good funny joke you did. So, official hunters had no luck with the beast. Uh, In February of 1765, a father-son hunter duo from Normandy announced they would travel to Gévaudan to eliminate the beast. Jean-Charles, the father, boasted he'd already killed 1,200 wolves, which is... That's too many. Too many, and also, by the way, is a pretty big assumption in that he, he was assuming there that it was a wolf, which no one had determined at that point. Uh, at that point, the predominant theory by a lot of people was actually hyena of some kind, which is can't wild. believe you made me listen to a story about a guy who killed a bunch of puppies. I know. Well, if it helps, he did not succeed in killing this one. That was a vengeance puppy, and he deserved it. <laughs> um, he was described by the guy who took kind of took up the project. I say he. I'm assuming I, I sh- the the beast. I don't know if the beast was a he. Um, described the creature as having a breast as wide as a horse, a body as long as a leopard's, and fur that was red with a black stripe. Now, he also said about it, you will undoubtedly think, like I do, that this is a monster, the father of which is a lion. What its mother was remains to be seen. Wow. 
Slam dunk, bro. Other witnesses said it could walk on its hind feet and its hide could repel bullets and it had fire in its eyes and it came back from the dead more than once and had amazing leaping ability. <laughs> I love this thing. I don't love the all the women and children that it killed. Like, don't that's not good. I don't endorse that particular behavior, but the rest of it is quite is quite interesting. So this thing continued to attack for another 18 months after this uh, hunter Francois Antoine and the son and the father mentioned before, they shot and killed a large wolf and assumed that that was the creature. They received a reward from the king. They did all this stuff and they were kind of hailed as these heroes. And then two months later, the attacks and the sightings resumed and continued for another 18 months. So nice try. (laughs) But no. There was an attempt. There was an attempt. The king, assuming that the beast had already been slain, offered little aid. Because, um, monarchies are no good. That's what I'm taking from that. Thanks, King Louis. I think that is the clear and obvious moral. Well, yeah, of course. So I'm going to hop away from that particular, that was the Smithsonian Magazine piece. And then I would like to talk a little bit more about the kind of, uh, werewolf connections that some people have made before I hit on the more likely or the other possible explanations and discussions of the creature because there are several reasons why lots of people insist that it was absolutely not a wolf at least not any kind of wolf that we currently know and you probably already know this that for the most part I'll I'll hit on this a little bit more but for the most part wolves are they're 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 terrified of people wolves do not attack people they're babies they are they're big puppies they're very skittish They don't want anything to do with people. Unless a wolf is starving or rabid, they will usually not try to interact with people at all. So it's very unusual for one wolf to torment a town for this long and go after this many people, even as people are actively pursuing and hunting it. Yeah, their strategy is primarily avoidant. Yeah, they don't, they're very anti-confrontation as a creature, which I respect and understand and relate to. So I'm going to hop over to the occultmuseum.com. In, to a piece entitled Beast of Javardin, the true story behind the legendary werewolf. Now, this piece obviously really leans into the idea that this was, in fact, some sort of werewolf. Yeah, they're making some pretty bold stances there, huh? Mm-hmm. They do rightfully mention that the creature has still to this day not been fully identified. And I'll like editorialize right here and say it's likely that it never will be since everyone who saw it in person has been dead for many hundreds of years. Uh, Unless so- it was a werewolf. And then we've got... Some eyewitnesses still roaming. Well, how long do you think werewolves live? It really depends on the fiction. Because if we're talking dog years and human lifespans, neither of those is much is longer than 100 years. But, you know, maybe. They might be immortal. You know what? I honestly can't even argue with you about this because I don't know any werewolves, so I cannot draw a comparison. <laughs> okay, so I the next time you try to, like, step on my turf. Wait, sorry, let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me clarify. I don't know that I know any werewolves. <laughs> uh, the Occult Museum discusses uh, what I mentioned before. You had the first attack in 1764. A young girl who was tending to her sheep when the creature arrived, she was killed and so were several of the creatures. Now, here's something. Yeah. And I, and I, and I have my own personal, like, weird th- personal little theory about this. At the scene of the attack was the livestock were found having, several of the livestock were found having been killed, right? And then Jean Boulet, who was supposedly J-A-N-N-E, I think it's Jean, Jean, Jan? But she was supposedly killed by the beast. However, all that was found at the scene were her bonnet and her clogs. 
The assumption was that her body had been devoured in its entirety by the beast, but I would like you to hear me out, please. If we're in the werewolf theory, mm-hmm. that she was perhaps the werewolf, she underwent a transformation, mm-hmm. left, obviously shook off her clogs and her bonnet, devoured several sheeps, and then ran off into the woods. I support it. Thank you. I would feel more guilty insinuating this if this were not a uh, a loss that occurred in 1764. There's um, a bit of distance there, yeah. There's some distance there. Um, so the attacks were incredibly brutal and terrifying, and they made people think that this had to be some sort of beast they had never encountered before. Uh, people who were supernaturally inclined believed that it was a werewolf, a half-man, half-beast that preyed upon them. So, I like the phrase supernaturally inclined because it's a little vague. Do you mean that they tended to think a lot about the supernatural? Or do you mean that, like, is supernaturally inclined a polite way of saying, we have seen them kill many villagers under the transformative influence of a full moon? Listen, I don't know, and I'm not going to... Dominique uh, over there has some supernatural inclinations. (laughs) It's like when you uh, it's like when you talk to an older relative who's not really sure what the who grew up in a generation where you don't like say that people in your community are, they, are gay, but like you they know, so they say like all these supernaturally weird inclined. <laughs> exactly, that's the very polite old timey way of saying somebody's a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Now, people claimed it was larger than any normal adult wolf; that it could obviously repel bullets; that it stood on its hind legs and walked like a man. Now. And then that particularly is the number one tie into the werewolf idea. And then, as I mentioned before, it was supposedly taken down multiple times by different hunters, but was not completely felled until 1767, where a local innkeeper, Jean Chastel, took it down with a hand-forged, or self-forged, I don't think he did it with his (laughs) bare hands, silver bullets. Now, this thing has persisted and popped up throughout werewolf lore. It's become a famous figure in werewolf lore by name. Um, it made its literary debut with gothic novels like La Bête de Javondon and Wolves, an old story retold. It's popped up in a lot of different popular culture things. There was a movie made about the whole thing called Brotherhood of the Wolf, and it also apparently popped up in the TV drama Teen Wolf. I'll go into that Interesting. a little later. There is... Yeah. So um, lots of people are ready to just kind of insist this thing was a werewolf. The funny thing about that is there's nothing to actually insist, like aside from the fact that it seemed to be very smart, capable of planning, hiding, avoiding people, and the fact that it walked on two legs and was very large, there isn't really anything that actually suggests to me that it was a werewolf. Like Mm -hmm. there wasn't really like, the hunts weren't, like the, the killings weren't timed with the full moon in any way. There wasn't, the silver bullet thing, I guess, but the rest of it doesn't really seem to imply werewolf to me in any way but i mean i also know that europe in the 1700s was probably like just ready for anything to be a werewolf this seems like a prime time for assuming stuff is werewolves i don't know maybe that's just me projecting some stereotypes i have about the era but it seems like prime werewolf time to me yeah i mean just sort of historically i think i think Mm -hmm. it's the werewolfening hours So I would like to talk about, uh, really quickly, before I move on to some potential explanations for this creature, I would like to talk about uh, this girl that I, like, an icon, a hero, we love her, uh, Marie-Jeanne Vallée versus the Beast of Gévaudan. This is a piece on Atlas Obscura, and it is particularly a piece about the fact that there is a statue built uh, depicting by Philippe Capelin, which which was erected in Auvers in 1995, and it depicts... Marie-Jeanne fighting the beast 
with a. I'll, I'll just read you the story of what she of Please how she fought do. it off. Mm-hmm. So, Antoine de Beton, gun bearer to the king and leader of the hunt for the beast, recorded a story of how the king's men were nearly shown up by a girl. Nearly, I say definitely shown up. In a sworn testimony recorded in 1765, Bertrand recounted Valet's story of her near miss and attempt at killing the feared beast, which she described as looking like an unusually large dog. According to the account, she was crossing between the branches of a river through a small wooded area when she turned to discover the beast immediately behind her. As it reared up for attack, the young woman plunged a homemade spear she had been carrying into its oh. chest. So she just she just had a spear with a her. Homemade spear. Yes, injured but not dead, the beast raised a paw to the injury and rolled off into the waters of the river. So this girl was taking a leisurely stroll along the river, clutching in one fist a handmade spear. Just in case anyone was gonna try anything with her that day. Can we talk more about the raised the raised a paw to the injury and then turned and ran? Like the visual of, did, um, of this animal just being like, "Whoa, dude!" It's better. Dude. It, didn't, it didn't turn and run. It rolled into the water. <laughs> that is way better. It was truly just the meme of I, "I'm a head out" and then just bye. Took a little side. I imagine like a little run, run, and then a sideways leap into the water. <laughs> that's pretty, it's very pretty great but anyway I didn't want to discuss this the particular beast without giving uh, Marie her credit where credit is due because this girl faced the beast and lived uh, and also apparently caused it to have a bit of a whoa dude moment powerful so before I wrap up I would like to the last big beat I want to hit is some potential theories and explanations as to what this creature might have actually been if you would like to believe that it's a werewolf, you are more than welcome to do so. A lot of the residents of 1700s France also believed that it was a werewolf. You are in fairly good company. But I turned to several different articles and a couple different Reddit threads for some potential explanations. So I mentioned a prehistoric uh, mammal and something that somebody raised in one of the Reddit threads, actually, and it turned me on to this National Geographic article. This article doesn't refer to the Beast of Gévaudan in any way but it does discuss a creature that is a potential explanation. So this is a National Geographic article from 2019, uh, and it's, the headline is, This new species of ancient carnivore was bigger than a polar bear. This is a creature from 22 million years ago. It is a Simba Kubwa. It was a fierce predator, um, and it looks... It translates to big lion in Swahili, the name, but it was not a big cat it was not a female or a female it was not a feline i can't mm-hmm. talk um it was uh, a member of a group of extinct mammals that's more similar to giant hyenas they're not related but they're similar in sort of features and structure and behaviors and these things i'm gonna describe this thing to you please it do. is look it looks a little like it's a massive hyena type creature it has a big long thick tail it has sort of dog-like haunches. Mm-hmm. It has, in the illustration on the National Geographic website, it has like rusty reddish brown fur and black stripes, <laughs> short ears like a hyena, a massive wolfy snoot, and just kind of a general like giant thick body that looks like ready to fight. It sounds very similar to the descriptions of the Beast of Gévaudan, particularly its size, because this thing was larger than a polar bear, which to me, I don't know the exact horse to polar bear conversion rate, but four <laughs> times as big of a horse sounds about like the right size range for that. 
Sure. <laughs> Why not? Thank you for being on board with me here. <laughs> I mean, no matter what size it is, it's my friend. Oh, I love this thing. I'll probably use the I'll probably use the rendering uh, illustration of it for this episode. Like at some point, like I'll just tweet it out, um, so everyone can see what this guy looks like. But no, it does kind of look like a little like a Tasmanian devil as well. If you've seen those their Aww. faces, which they're real cute, but this guy is really big also, and it was a carnivore. So like, I I know you hate it when I tell you this, Alex, but you probably shouldn't pet him. So listen, I don't care if you tell me I shouldn't. Just don't tell me I'm not gonna. Now I would like to. Um, talk about a theory that relates to something we talked about earlier. You mentioned the idea of it being a pet, right? I mentioned a dream that I have, yes. <laughs> so I found this during, from on a couple of my sources, and now I'm mad because I can't find the actual original one that I wanted to hit, but it pops up a couple times. Uh, there's a History Today article that posits uh, that actually cites, you, you like Sherlock Holmes, cites The Hound of the Baskervilles mm-hmm. and discusses the plot of that particular story in which, spoilers for a for a story from 1902, uh, Holmes and Watson meet a villain named Jack Stapleton who has trained a massive hound to do away with his rivals on the Baskerville estate. So a theory that a lot of people had and have had in the aftermath of The Beast of Gévaudan is that it was not a wild animal, but rather a trained pet of some kind that someone trained to attack people in the area. Interesting. And that the reason it was so easy for... It was easily avoided hunters was because it was being kept from them. So this particular article doesn't posit the the theory, um, but I have seen multiple people implicate the possibility that the man who supposedly eventually killed it, Chastel that it was a pet hyena of his uh, that he trained to kill people because he was actually a serial killer using the beast as his murder weapon. Oh. So anyway, that's a pretty wild uh, conspiracy theory. But as soon as you said pet, I was like, no, but listen. I do love that. No, but listen. People have also suggested it was some kind of large dog, some sort of mastiff. And then, of course, the way that stories take on their own life and whispered, fearful accounts breed in the dark. It became this kind of mythologized giant beastie of some kind. But you never really know. I do really like that so, theory. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I do it's like not that cool if this person was serial <laughs> killing by puppy, but... Well, yeah, absolutely. But the people died but, no matter what the truth is. So of the theories, that theory is interesting to me. It's very interesting, and it also, to me, somewhat absolves the uh, the creature of its fault. Yeah, a little bit. It wasn't him fault. So, um, I would also want to say too that one of the reasons it's unlikely it was a wolf is because um, there is, as I mentioned, wolves don't really attack people. Uh, there's a National Geographic article actually about the Beast of Gévaudan and sort of digging into like what it could have possibly been and what kind of what the different theories people have and. This one specifically uh, hits on, uh, there is a 2002 review of wolf attacks on humans um, and talks about the fact that people, basically what I talked about already, that one, that wolves don't attack humans very much, but also that the beast of Gévaudan's attack patterns don't really match how wolves would behave. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, I'll just read this little section here. Uh, In the tables, the attacks of the beast are included since they're considered as wolf attacks. However, if the table row France 
19, I keep saying 1964. This was not in the 1960s. My God. 1764 to 1767 is excluded and analyzed separately. The following emerges. The Beast's data shows a drastic shift towards higher age groups of victims. Grown-up victims of the Beast are proportionally six times more frequent than grown-up victims of wolves. Children under the age of 10, in contrast, are only represented by a third compared to the data for wolves. Because wolves are largely, I'm imagining, this is me extrapolating here, wolves are small. They're not, they're not really that big. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of compared to a creature like the one described here. The victims of the beast were older on average, therefore more able to defend themselves more powerfully. They were heavier and energetically more lucrative. The beast's data are significantly different from the wolf's data. Since the average prey size normally increases with the body size of predators, the data present indirect but nevertheless clear evidence that the witnesses of that time had not exaggerated. They had encountered an animal that was much bigger than a wolf. I just thought that was some neat data for you. Um, So then... I mentioned the descriptions and how it crossed over into much more likely to be hyenas and things like Mm -hmm. that, though that also raises some questions because hyenas are not really active predators for the most part. They're largely, most species of hyenas are scavengers. They don't really just attack things, especially when they would attack people. Also, there's the fact that hyenas are not native to France. What was the Beast of Gévaudan? Now, here are some theories from some people on Reddit. Oh, good. This particular guy says uh, that he believes it was an exotic animal of some kind, uh, that it was particularly possibly a hyena or some sort of lion that had escaped from the zoo. Then there was, based on the descriptions, people proposing that it had something to do with the thylacine, a creature I've talked about on this podcast before that is considered extinct. But if you've not seen it before, it it looks kind of like a little uh, hyena-y it's um, mm-hmm. this striped, uh, dog-headed type of thing. It's also called the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf, if you know it by that moniker. And the last known live one was captured in 1933. So there's also that one. And then there's also just theories that it was a uh, spotted hyena. Um, now, particularly spotted hyenas... Um, are one of the only types of hyenas that has been known to... It's a hyena type that has been known to eat people, like attack people. Uh Has been known to sort of make sounds that sound a little bit human-like, which might tie into the werewolf explanation. For sure. And match the descriptors in a lot of ways, except for the pattern of their coat. Like the snout, the short ears, the large tail. All of those descriptors do line up with a spotted hyena, as well as the descriptions of the teeth except for the fact that it was never described as having any kind of spots. So, honestly, the, it's... What a surprise. Reddit did not solve this for me, and it still remains somewhat inconclusive. But... Wow, that's so unexpected. <laughs> isn't that so unexpected that Reddit didn't solve an eight, a hundreds of years old mystery? But, Weird. But that is the Vista of Gévaudan. I'm going to wrap up with a couple fun facts about... Uh, fun facts. Just thought catalog. Someone made a listicle. I'm a sucker for a listicle. And it's literally just 12 facts about the Beast of Gévaudan, the wolf-like creature who terrorized France. Uh, so here are some facts if you want just a little boil right, down. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit you with some facts. And you can't see, but I'm doing like a fun hand gesture with each one. Like I'm like throwing it at you like, bam, like this is a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And I'm like old school Ray William Johnson, a man I should never have compared myself to because he's kind of the worst, but it's OK. Um, so 
The Beast of Gévaudan was a man-eating creature that looked like a wolf. However, it was as big as a calf. This is a very different account than the one I mentioned before. It had a dog-like head, small ears, wide chest, formidable teeth, and immense tail. That was all one fact. Some witnesses claimed the Beast of Gévaudan had supernatural abilities. They believed it could make astounding leaps and that it could come back from the dead. Number three. Mm-hmm. This is just literally that it got its name from terrorizing the province of Gévaudan. That's not that exciting. Number four. There were, over one, there were over 100 deaths caused by the beast. Many others survived the attacks but were seriously injured. Number five, the beast of Gévaudan targeted heads and necks. It was common for the creature to rip out a victim's throat, which, by the way, little Addison aside here, does kind of make the lion theory come into play a little bit more for me personally because that's a, uh, that's a hunting pattern for a lot of big cats. So number six. From 1764 to 1767, over 100 wolves were killed in Gévaudan because they were mistaken for the beast, which is very sad, and I am very mad that that happened to the wolves. They did not deserve that. Now, I'm not going to read through all of these because they are actually a lot of repeats of things I've already hit, and I don't want to be too uh, repetitive here, but Mm -hmm. there was another victim that was known for fighting off the beast. A young boy named Jacques Portefei scared the creature away with pikes, and the king paid him a reward. I don't know why Marie didn't get a reward. Actually, I do know why Marie didn't well, get Well, we know why Marie didn't get Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. Because of the frequency of the attacks, some skeptics believed that the Beast of Gévaudan was not just one animal, but actually a pack of them. Okay. And that's just, that's it. Oh. <laughs> and that does come up a couple times. <laughs> that's the whole fact. Thought Catalog is not known for being thorough. But I actually did see that pop up in a few places because of the frequency of attacks and because that often the creature that people assumed it was, was killed, but then attacks would resume, that it wasn't that this creature could come back from the dead, but rather that there was a pack of them. I mean, I do like that as well. Because, you know, that maybe is a little bit of an Occam's razor kind of thing, like simplest explanation. It seems like a simpler explanation that rather than this thing being able to revive itself from death, that it was just more than, there was just more than one. And, you know, the family that slays together stays together. So this family of of wolf creatures, perhaps a family of werewolves, uh, was, ra- was able to wreak some terror upon the French countryside. So then there is a film I mentioned. If you want to watch it, I've never seen it, so I can't recommend if it's any good or not. But there is a French historical action horror film called Brotherhood of the Wolf. It came out, excuse me, it came out in 2001 and it did pretty well. It grossed over $70 million worldwide. Uh, It enjoyed commercial success. Universal distributed it. And it apparently implies, from what I can gather, it implies that the beast was some kind of werewolf. Some variety. Some variety of werewolf. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we have no time. It has 13 chapters. Nor am I going to name the person who wrote it because I don't want to weirdly put them on blast for doing something very harmless. (laughs) But when I searched... For the Beast of Gévaudan, I found a fanfiction. Nice. I found a teen. I found a teen wolf fanfiction called The Beast of Gévaudan, and I don't really, it, from what I can tell, it doesn't actually have anything to do with The Beast of Gévaudan. But the it, it the uh, I will read the description for it anyway, just because I know nothing about Teen Wolf and I like fanfiction and I think it's fun. The Alpha Pack has arrived, and with a bag of new tricks, Styles is bitten, but instead of becoming a beta, he jumps right to being an alpha. Oh, I see. Scott's, 
<laughs> Scott's alpha. The plot thickens when the newly reformed Stalinsky pack must team up with the Hale pack to not only stop the alpha pack, but save their family and friends in the process. This was last updated in March of 2014. So if it's not finished, then I'm very sorry because you'll never get that resolution. The resolution that you are but all craving so intensely. The resolution that you all craved so very, very much. Um, like final thing before I just close us out with our usual like wrap ups and just get your final thoughts on the whole guy. I do want to talk about just the influence that this particular creature has had on culture as a whole. This thing has popped up, of course, in literature. I mentioned already some of the writings about it. It, it I mentioned I think I mentioned that there is a novel, La Bête de Javadon, uh, which is a, it's a fictional novel which attributes the killings to a wolf and also a man who thinks he's a werewolf but isn't which is actually this is not a true crime podcast and it's a gruesome thing that i won't go into in detail it's never going to be a true crime podcast let me just get that out of the way no no not at all my point is i'm not going to go into this in detail but if you're familiar with like uh some like older cases you might be aware there was a killer in europe in i want to say the 1800s who believed that he was a werewolf he wore a wolf skin belt. Oh, I did know uh, that. And believed, yes, this was a, and again, I'm not going to go into any more detail than that because it's a really disturbing kind of thing, but that is what that reminded me of. I think we talked of, about this on some other episode. Probably on the Rougarou one or another Maybe. wolf-related episode. Know. Anyway, sorry to, re- to uh, retread an old beat here. There's also a book in 1904, which also involves a werewolf. There's another book called, um, that in which it's described, the book Travels with a Donkey in the Savant. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, claims at least one of the creatures was a wolf in this particular in this particular writing. There is a Patricia Biggs novel, Hunting Ground, in which the beast is in fact the man who claimed to kill it and is a werewolf, uh, which I think is a very neat. I like that interpretation. Jean Chastel was in fact the beast all along. Um, in the Jim Butcher novel, Full Moon, not Full Moon, Full Moon, part of the Dresden Files, the beast is mentioned as an example of a powerful and vicious type of werewolf known as a Lugaru, which we have we talked have. about. Now, the beast has also been featured in, not friend of the show, but oft-cited thing on the show, because I grew up obsessed with it, the TV series Animal X, which was dedicated to discussing cryptids and unsolved mysteries related to animals that have been unidentified. They also did an episode talking about the thylacine, and it's where I kind of caught the cryptid bug early. But not a cryptid bug, although I'm sure there are bugs that are cryptids. And the other way around. There was a French TV film. There was Brotherhood of the Wolf. There was the remake of The Wolfman. There was... Um, which In which the wolf-headed cane given to Lawrence Talbot was acquired in the city of Gévaudan. Then the History Channel made a documentary called The Real Wolfman, which argued that the beast was an exotic animal, like a striped hyena. And then... Like I mentioned, in the MTV drama Teen Wolf, the character Allison learns, spoilers, in the sixth episode of the first season that her werewolf hunting family was responsible for slaughtering the beasts of Gévaudan. Ooh. So, uh, there you go. Oh, also, Alex, just for you. Just for you. Just for um, me? In the, in the popular Shonen Jump Japanese manga series, My Hero Academia, oh. there is a character, Jirota Shishida, whose hero name and alias is Jevaudan. That's pretty cool. <laughs> the names in My Hero Academia are pretty I have recently, for anybody who doesn't know because they don't follow my Twitter, I've recently <laughs> been getting very into My Hero Academia after a lifetime of not being an anime person at all. I like that, and I like I like this for you. I like this journey for you. It's good. Um, it's like... And, and to be clear... Well, okay, I can't say never because I was a middle schooler once and I was a not like other girls middle schooler. But um, we've all been. But there. my problem, 
primarily with watching anime has not been a problem. It's just been like, I'm a busy person who has so much media that people are telling me all the time to consume and I literally cannot get to all of it. And I especially, me. It's and okay. I especially can't commit to like, you know, in, involving myself in a huge cultural movement. I just don't have time. Um, and, you know, not to like point fingers or anything. There are a lot of people in those communities who engage in a lot of problematic behaviors, and I just was not particularly enticed by any of uh, them. Oh, yeah. But I have been watching My Hero Academia, and it is, like, a very unexpectedly lovely story about how, like, even when you are the protagonist of your own story, like, coming to realize that everybody around you has their own unique and, like, equally significant struggles. Like, there's a line um, in one of the mid-seasons when the protagonist, like, is learning something else about somebody else's backstory, and he says the line, like, it was unbelievable to me to, like, hear about the things that he'd been through. Like, if this were a comic book, he'd be the protagonist. And it was just, like, really interesting. But it's a really cool story about, oh. like, you know, even when you've gone through, like, things that seem, like, really significant and insurmountable struggles to you, like, everybody's got their own thing going on. It's I nice. It's really nice. the series. Um, also, <laughs> as someone who is responsible for possibly 90% of the <laughs> media you get shoved at you with a please look at this, I'm very oh, sorry, but I you, also but... probably won't stop. Okay, good. Because I will like fully admit before God and, and Mothman and everyone that like I my love language is just kind of shoving media I love at people and being like, this, this one. Oh, um, I understand. So, you know. But also like, uh-huh. you know. I am at work from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. tomorrow, so I I just do not have a oh, lot of no. time for media consumption. So speaking of that, then we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. Would be nice. Up. Yes. Do you have Do you have any final thoughts on this particular beastie boy? You know my thoughts on this beastie boy. He just wanted to fight for his right to party. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um. And I want to uh, fight. No, I and you I want to fight for my right to pet he. <laughs> <laughs> I know this to be true. Yep. I didn't mean to uh, chomp your flavor a little bit with a big wolfy boy, but I just kind of stumbled no, I'm upon glad. him. It was nice my, to uh... to just sit back and be able to um, to stand in defense of him. Mm-hmm. And honestly, just for everybody out there, if you would like to hear my headcanon about historical events, I guess, uh, since if it is to be believed that this creature was so good at resurrecting himself, then he probably didn't actually... Uh, die at the hands of the man who may or may not have been a werewolf or a serial killer or both. He's probably just fine. And maybe he pivoted to a slightly more vegetarian diet. I mean, we can only hope. We can only hope. <laughs> do you have any uh, Do you have any announcements or final thoughts? Uh, I do not. No. Take it away. Neither. And neither do I. So with that, just a thank you to everybody. Thank you to our audio wizard, Val Patron. Thank you to our in-house composer, Andrew Giotta, for the use of our theme music. Thank you. To listeners like you. That's right, PBS. I'm coming for your I'm coming for your brand. Uh know that you are appreciated, know that you are seen and heard, and that this podcast is possible only because there is a place for it in this great big internet and this great big world. So as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. <laughs>